Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This week, Pastor Josh brings us the Christmas message and speaks on the birth of Christ. In this sermon, we hear about the rod of Jesse as referenced in the book of Isaiah and how that is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 11 as Pastor Josh delivers his message titled, O Come Thou Rod of Jesse. so we could get a little squirrely, but that is okay. Uh, little kids of True Vine, uh, welcome, behave, or we'll make you come sit up here with me uh, while this is going on. Isaiah chapter 11. Let me uh, back us up just a bit into chapter 10 for a little bit of context. Um, and then we're gonna, so we're gonna start in chapter 10, verse 33, and then we'll read down through the first 10 verses of chapter 11. So let's read the word and pray for Lord's help. 10:33. Behold, the Lord, the God of hosts will lop off the boughs with a terrible crash. Those also who are tall in stature will be cut down and those who are lofty will be abased. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an iron ax and Lebanon will fall by the mighty one. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and strength, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord and he will not judge by what his eyes see nor make a decision by what his ears hear, but with righteousness. He will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist and the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard will lie down with the young goat and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Then in that day, the nations will resort to the root of Jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious. Let's pray. God, I sincerely ask that you'll bless this time. Father, I, I pray every soul in here, even down to the little ones, oh God, will benefit. Father, please send your spirit. Father, I need your help to preach, teach. We all need your help, oh God, to receive your word in a way that is right and worshipful, that is not stubborn and obstinate, but is humble and responsive to you, and Lord, that we will heed. So please, oh God, all the truths you want to show, please bless this time, protect this service, send us your spirit, I pray, in a special way, oh Lord, that we will be changed by your truth, your living and active truth that changes hearts. So please work it, oh God, and we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. This time of year, we have... Uh, hundreds of individual traditions that occur with Christmas. 
And actually some of those traditions have pagan roots. That if you were to follow back the, the why of why does people do this kind of thing right here, if you went back nine, ten centuries, some of them even farther, even thousands of years, we would find some superstition of the Greeks or the Romans. Occasionally, Christians can get real worried about that and sensitive, wanting to remove everything from their lives that's connected with paganism and Amen to that. We want to remove everything that uh, would be associated in anything that does not glorify God. But I'd argue there comes a point at which when you don't even know something was associated with paganism, it has lost its paganism. Like all of us in the room married who are wearing wedding rings. That actually roots back to the Roman Empire of a belief that the ring finger on your right hand had an artery that connected to your heart. I doubt any of you on your wedding day thought, you know, somehow I'd like to pay homage to some Roman emperors today. How could I do this? It's lost. It's paganism. But if you trace the roots of some of those kinds of traditions, some of them might have some connections. I don't believe that means we go through and we scrap everything. There's the whole principle of the baby and the bathwater thing. Throw out the dirty water, keep the beautiful baby. Evil is always a parasite attaching itself to what is good. But a lot of our Christmas traditions actually come from very beautiful roots that also kind of get lost over time. For instance, the uh, practice of hanging Christmas lights can be traced back to Martin Luther in the Reformation, that he would encourage the hanging of candles around trees cautiously so as to signify Jesus as the light of the world. And really quite a few of our Christmas traditions can be rooted back to the time of the Reformation, including the fact that you're here this morning by your own decision and you're not facing penalty of law if you were not here. It was actually the case in certain places in Europe that on Christmas service and some of the others through the year, if you did not show up, there was a short jail penalty if you did not show up. As a pastor, occasionally I think that could be a good idea, but the reformers worked for religious liberty and there's actually quite a bit that connects to this. In medieval times, so think 1400s especially, that, that period right before the Reformation, the established church in medieval times kind of represents some of the worst of what has gone on under the name of Christianity. Those days leading up to the Reformation, there's a reason why when the Reformation spark was thrown, it just broke forth like wildfire throughout, throughout Europe and the world. The Reformation was a protest to the insanity of the man-made perversions, the man-made changes, and the superstitious witches' brew that had formed over the course of centuries of all of these human inventions, inventions that had been added to what God established as true religion. It was a return to biblical Christianity. It was a return to true religion. The heart of the matter of the Reformation was about the heart of everything, all that matters. How can I be right with the living God? 
How can I have eternal life? We use the word church loosely sometimes as we refer to the established church in medieval times. Had brought about so many corruptions that the popular teaching of the day was your participation in all of these things we invented will earn your way to heaven. The Bible declares that all who turn to Christ in genuine faith, all who turn from their sin and rebellion and turn with a heart that trust in Christ, looking to him will be saved. That was and remains the heart of the Reformation, but biblical Christianity also extends to every corner, every crevice, and every shadow of your life and the reformers sought to return all of life and all of how we worship, all of how the church operates back to biblical Christianity. And that included even the calendar. Medieval times, there was a feast day just about every week or so, commemorating everything from the patron saint of the three-legged cats and internet speed to just all kinds of insanity that went on. And the reformers looked at this and just said, this is, this is nuts. Let's, let's clear out everything that has been invented by man and let's return to the Bible. And so the reformers scrapped all of these many, many feast days and such and returned the church to, to celebrating five events of the gospel. Five days of remembering with gratitude, five days of commemoration. Those days are the holy days, holidays that they returned to were the incarnation, Christmas, the crucifixion, Good Friday, Resurrection Day, Ascension and Pentecost. Now, it's not like the New Testament prescribed these and says you, you must observe them in this kind of way, in this kind of way, and if you don't, you lose points out on heaven. God hasn't given any of those things in the New Covenant. It's simply about a way of having a time in the year that we remember, that we have a time that we rejoice in these things, like we rejoice in the Resurrection Day this week and this Sunday, we rejoice in the incarnation. If you're not familiar with that word and for you little ones in the room, when we use that word incarnation, what we mean, carnate means flesh. So we're talking about the enfleshment, the eternal son of God taking on a human body. It was returned to a place of prominence because historically Christians did treat it as a big deal, rejoicing and celebrating. And now there was this return to it, and rightly so. The incarnation of the infinite Son of God to enter the time and space that He created is among the greatest miracles of all of history, right up there with the creation of the universe itself and the miracles that God has worked in salvation. I mean, when you think about it, even the parting of the Red Sea, as incredible as it would have been to be there and to behold it, is just flower pollen compared to the mountain that is the miracle of the infinite God who formed the, the galaxies and keeps the electrons spinning throughout the universe. That God taking a human body, entering the world and inhabiting a tiny 
baby body. The incarnation is just astounding. And another way we see that is that for thousands of years, God was preparing the world and preparing the heavens, preparing the angels and the demons in the heavenly places to be ready for the son's entrance. The incarnation ought to be celebrated like heaven celebrated it. That's a principle of worship, by the way. The earth was created to do what is done in heaven. Read what happens in heaven and you'll see how we are to live on earth, how we are to behave, how we are to submit, how we are to obey, how we are to worship on this earth. We ought to out rejoice, out delight, and out celebrate the world in rejoicing in the incarnation. That doesn't mean outspend, out buy, out drink, and out do nonsensical things. Doesn't mean you need more inflatable snowmen in your yard than your neighbor. It, returning to biblical Christianity might even mean stabbing some of those inflatable objects in your <laughs> yard. But we are to spend and buy and give gifts and feast and rejoice. Remember the whole baby in the bathwater thing? Just because parasites of culture have latched on to certain good things doesn't mean we scrap those right there. Even the, the giving of gifts links back to the Old Testament in the book of Esther when uh, during the days of Purim, out of their joy of God's deliverance, they gave gifts. Christians have historically given gifts out of joy. So by all means, vomit in your mouth at the consumerism and materialism that you see pervasive in culture, but that doesn't mean stop the giving of gifts and stop the feasting and stop the rejoicing. We ought to celebrate like heaven celebrated. Rejoice like Heaven rejoiced at the incarnation. The people of God, we own this day. We own this. This is for us. The Son of God entered time and space. He took a body to become a man and die on a cross for all who will turn to Christ. Let's out rejoice the world. Let's hang the Christmas lights. Let's return to the true meaning of them. Put a sign that says Jesus is the light of the world. Let's spread Christmas cheer for all to hear. But for crying out loud, let's stop singing about stupid reindeer. And let's rejoice in that which is actually wonderful. The incarnation of the Son of God. And let's start using the word incarnation again. Prolifically to return it to what it was designed to be. Let's announce to the world. The king has come. The lion and scepter of Judah has made his entrance. The suffering servant has arrived. The root of Jesse has sprouted. When we look at the Old Testament, which is often what we do in our, our Christmas worship, we are looking back on the time and the way that God was preparing the heavens and the earth for the coming of the Son. The text we're looking at this morning gives us one among more than a hundred of these, these metaphors, these pictures that help us see the beauty of this. So here's where we transition to the text that we're going to look at. If you look over to Isaiah 11, 1 there and look at that, the first verse especially. 
We're told then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. A branch, a shoot will grow. The King James uses the word rod. So whenever we are singing some of our hymns like O Come, O Come Emmanuel, which is my favorite Christmas hymn. And we get to that line that says, O come thou rod of Jesse. We need to know what we're singing. This is where this comes from. We have here yet another metaphor, yet another poetic, beautiful picture to help us not only understand, but, but catch this. This is the big point. But also helps us to be moved by the beauty and the power of the truth. You need to know this about our God. Our God delights in beauty. Our God in the scriptures, a full one-third of the Bible is poetry and song. Our God wants us to not only understand truths, he doesn't just list them off like God is holy, Jesus is coming. These things are spoken in beautiful and poetic ways because poetry and song is aimed at helping our hearts feel. It's aimed at helping us be moved with affection so that we rejoice in the truths. We, we are moved by the truths. We delight in those truths all through the Bible. We see God doing this. Now, like last year, we studied Jesus as the morning star. I don't know if you got anything out of it. I did this whole year as I would drive down the road or sit in the deer stand when I saw those morning stars, just the whole flood of the weight of those truths just came back all over again and was moved to worship. This is what God wants. He gives beautiful picture and title and name after name after name so that we would understand these things and then be moved by the beauty of them. We have another one right here. He also gives us graphic pictures at times to move us in different ways. But this one here is meant to be a beautiful picture. In Isaiah 10, 11, and 12, there's good news and bad news. There's a devastating picture, but then also a beautiful hope. To understand the picture, let's walk through the line of scripture that God used to explain it. One more little introductory point, and then we'll start getting into it. This is something else remarkable. God will take a thousand years to explain a truth. God will stir the hearts of a dozen biblical writers, scripture, each of them spread apart by hundreds of years to build on what a previous author had written until he finishes this beautiful story. The, the storyline of this one image, this one metaphor of the, the root of Jesse, stretches from Genesis 49 to Revelation 22. If you're keeping track, that is 1,800 years for God to draw out one metaphor. And he does this all through the Bible. But here's the metaphor. If you cut down a tree and leave just the stump, not every time and not even most of the time, but sometimes a little shoot will begin to grow out of the stump. Some trees do it more than others. Mulberries are notorious for this. But the picture here is this. The family of Judah, this is the tribe of Israel that the kings came from, and we'll look at why in a bit. 
But the towering tree of Judah would be cut down. It would look like a, a decimated tree that was once glorious, but now rotting on the forest floor. But the enormous stump is what is left at the evidence of its former glory. But out of that fallen tree, a shoot would sprout. And that sprout would eventually become a tree. And that eventually all the nations of the earth would bow to, rest in its shade and eat of its bounty. That's the picture, but we still don't understand it without the storyline. Who's Jesse? Why does he matter? Who's the sprout? You probably get that part. But what is, how do we put all this together? So here's the story. God tells these things in the Bible, in the vast storyline, the ultimate epic that passes through history. We have creation and fall, and on the day of the fall, you probably remember that in the midst of God pronouncing a curse, he also spoke a promise of hope. That one day there would come the descendant of Eve, one born of a woman, and that's enlightening too, by the way. It wasn't spoken in reference to Adam, it was spoken in reference to Eve. One born of a woman would come who would crush the head of this serpent of evil. It was a promise that this coming one would undo the works of the devil, would fix and redeem all that had been ruined and broken. As you follow the storyline of the Bible, you are following the story of God fulfilling that promise. That's one way that you can summarize the storyline of the history of the Bible, God fulfilling this promise. As you continue through the Old Testament, you see God form a nation. He forms a special group of people. He didn't pick them because they were great. They didn't even exist. And he's the one who created them. He wanted a people to work in, to show a drama to the world through, and then bring this one to come into the world through this family. So he comes to Abram. He saves him, gives him promises. We see him give Abram a son named Isaac. Isaac has Jacob. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. And Jacob has 12 sons who became the father of tribes within this group. The rest of the Old Testament is God showing us him working in and then through this special group of people. But simultaneously... While God is working in this group and through this group, simultaneously, we have these hundreds of times that God would send prophets into the world in order to declare more about the coming of this one. In all of the Old Testament, there is this pointing to show all of history will culminate and climax in this one. And so all through the Old Testament, we see more description of this one. So not only would he be the descendant of Eve, he would be a descendant of Abraham. He'd be a prophet like Moses, a priest like Melchizedek, a, a king like David. He would come from the lineage of David. The prophets give title after title. We got this root of Jesse here. Isaiah 53 calls him the suffering servant, on and on. If you'll flip over to Genesis 49 with me, you can kind of keep your place in Isaiah there. But Genesis 49, what's happening in history at the storyline point here, this is Jacob on his deathbed. The Lord sends his spirit to inspire Jacob to speak a word of prophecy to all 12 of his sons. 
not only to what will happen in their life, but their offspring to come. Look at verse eight to see what he speaks to one of those sons. Genesis 49, eight. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who dares rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. The promise here is this. Judah, this son of Jacob, would have children who had children who had children and on down the line, there would be an offspring who would one day take the scepter. That's the the king's staff. This offspring, his brothers would praise him. He would have his hand on the back of necks in conquering. At the end of verse 10, the peoples of the earth, people groups, nations would obey him. Well, You can see where this is going, but another thing to kind of know as you're reading the Bible, this would be a big help. When you encounter prophecy, very often, it's not every time, but very often prophecy has multiple fulfillment. That there will be this ultimate way that we know it's working towards Christ, but there will also be an earthly partial way that it is brought about on earth. The partial way that this would be fulfilled As you follow the story of God's work, roughly 800 years after this moment, you come to the book of Ruth. The book of Ruth is about this woman, uh, Ruth, a Moabitess woman who had married a Jewish man. Her husband dies. She's left destitute and impoverished. She goes to the land of Israel with her mother-in-law, Naomi. There she meets a man of the tribe of Judah named Boaz. They marry Together they have a son named Obed. Obed grows up, has a son, and his name is Jesse. Now we're finally to the point in the storyline of this Jesse that Isaiah 11 refers to. Jesse has eight sons, the youngest of which was David. David eventually comes to sit on the throne as king of Israel. Genesis 49 is now partially being fulfilled. Think about it. A descendant of Judah has a scepter. His hand is on the back of necks. And even in David's lifetime, some, a few foreign nations gave allegiance to him. It is partially being fulfilled. But Genesis 49 also said this, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, meaning that line would always reign, always. Well, as you continue in the prophets, you see more of that kind of language. If you're back in Isaiah, uh, flip to Isaiah 9 for a moment to one of our favorite Christmas passages there. Isaiah 9, verse 6, I'll read it quickly. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. 
There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. I thought when I read that part about there being no end to the increase of his government, I have to, might have to calm you down from raucous cheering that would occur after the week of politics that we just had. Regardless of your political views, surely you're ready for King Jesus to take the throne and every government to bow the knee and for him to have his hand on the back of necks. What we are told is that the coming of this one, the Messiah, the promised one, he will reign and every nation, every people group, will obey and give allegiance to him. There will be no limit to his authority, his sovereignty, and his rule. This is even bigger than Genesis 49. All nations will bow to this one. How will that come about? If you are an Israelite living in Old Testament Israel, this one makes you pretty happy. But to understand the story fully, it's a dishonest and devastating thing to only take the happy parts of the Bible and ignore the hard parts. The same book of Isaiah that gives us chapter nine also spoke chapter one, chapter two, chapter three, chapter four, and well, about 40 chapters of Isaiah that give a warning of judgment, that describe the sin and rebellion and failure to worship the Lord their God as he had called them to. Earth was created to do what heaven does, but the people have rejected their creator as their sovereign and they insist on ruling themselves. And when we come to Isaiah chapters 10, 11, and 12, we come to this good news, bad news thing. The bad news, if you remember from the end of chapter 10, we started there in verse 33, God says he is coming in with an ax. If you think of Judah's line, if you think of David, this mighty king and his family tree as this, as this massive tree taller than all of the others, a, a tree that is brother's trees lived under its shade and ate of its fruit. He says that tree would be cut down. He's going to hew down the tree of Judah. If we had more time, I would take you over to Jeremiah chapter 22. You maybe jot that down for some personal study, verses 24 to 30. But that passage was given by God 150 years after Isaiah 9. That's a lot of patience And a lot of God sending even more prophets to call the people to repentance and to warn them. But in Jeremiah 22, here's what happens. God speaks to the second to last king of Judah, a man by the name of Jeconiah. And by the time Jeremiah comes on the scene, the message is no longer like in Isaiah's day, repent and your nation will be spared. By the time Jeremiah comes on the scene is, the message is you're done. It's here. You have provoked the Lord's wrath so long. Judgment is coming by all means. Turn to be forgiven for your own soul's sake, but your nation is obliterated. And to Jeconiah, what God says is, you're through. 
write this man down childless. Jeconiah did have sons, but what God said is, not a son will see the throne. You're through. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, then came in and put Jeconiah's uncle on the throne, who was the last king of Judah. And in 586 BC, Babylon besieged Jerusalem, burned it to the ground. The temple was decimated and the kings cast from the throne. Since that day, in a physical earthly way, there has never been a Jewish king sit on the throne over Israel. He said, you're done. But in the midst of the warnings of judgment, against the backdrop of understanding God's wrath and justice, this is when his hope and mercy shines the brightest. In Jeremiah 23, five to six, God says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is his name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteousness. If you've been with us through our study of Romans, then you see the significance of that name. The whole message of the gospel is how we who are sinners and are unrighteous in God's sight can be given a righteousness that is not our own, but on the basis of faith in Christ. You're not righteous, but God will give you a righteousness, but it comes from Christ and it comes from the Lord Jesus. And you see something similar back in Isaiah 11. Isaiah 10 leaves off with, I'm coming with an ax and I am hewing down Judah. But Isaiah 11 says this, out of the stump that looked dead, life will sprout. It will not make sense. It will look like it's not possible, but life will grow, a rod of Jesse will spring from the roots. It will appear small and insignificant, but this sprout will become a tree. The tree will increase and the increase of his rule and sovereignty will never end. We see this same language then quoted in the New Testament in Romans chapter 15. In a passage that's quoted to emphasize the part of this section that talks about the fact that every nation will come to bow to this king. In Romans 15, 12, it says this, there shall come the root of Jesse and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles. Now pause there for just a second. The Pharisees, those who had that self-righteous demeanor and attitude, when they heard that verse, there's a way they wanted to finish that verse. They'll come the root of Jesse. He who arises to rule over the Gentiles. The Pharisees would like to finish that verse. Yeah, he's going to rule them and burn them. But that's not how it goes. Romans 15, there shall come the root of Jesse. And he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. 
Not only is this righteous one coming to rule the nations and all the nations will bow to him, but he is also the savior who comes to bring hope and eternal life to all who call on him. Yes, of course, there will be judgment and we see the Bible talk about that plenty, but we also see this one comes as the desire of nations. This one comes as the hope and peace and salvation of all who turn to him. And then in Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, we see the finishing touches of this metaphor. In Revelation 22, Jesus says this, Behold, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. I am the alpha and the omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. You notice that whenever Jesus says that, he doesn't simply say, I'm the sprout. I'm the branch. He also says, I'm the roots. And he says that right after he just explained, I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the first and the last. I'm the alpha and the omega. Jesus is not only according to the flesh, that descendant of David that had been promised, but as God himself, he is the root. He's the creator. He's the one who formed the line of Jesse. He is the root and the sprout, the beginning and the end, the author and the finisher. God spent thousands of years preparing the heavenly creatures and the earthly ones for the entrance of his son. Every time you encounter angels in the Bible in connection with the coming of Jesus, they're always doing something. They are worshiping in glad, rapturous awe. It is the only response that is appropriate. Christian, this is our call. This is how we respond. We respond how it is done in heaven. To you who are not believing that you must be saved. To you who are not looking to Jesus as the only way to be right with God, this is also your call. Our loving warning to you is the same as the message of the prophets. You must repent and be saved. You must have a righteousness that is not your own. You must have forgiveness of sins and you do not have it on your own. You need Christ. God created you to submit to him as the sovereign to worship him as your God, to obey him as your king. Let me be frank with you. You're not doing that. You're failing to do that. But so did all of us Christians. We've all fallen short of it. But the mercy that God has extended is there is a way that you can turn to him and righteousness will be counted to you. Forgiveness of sins will be given to you. And this will be your, your first way of giving him the allegiance and worship and obedience that he is due. It is for you to turn in your heart to him. Believe the message. Believe on Christ. Look to him to be saved. Call out to him to be saved. And scripture says you will be. Pray for Christ to save you. Let's close in prayer.
Father in heaven, Lord, I ask that the truths of your word will impact. Um, Father, please, I pray, bring your people this week to worship you rightly in a way that is in wonder. Father, any um, who are hearing this, O God, and are unconverted, they have not yet come to you still trusting themselves, still ruling their own life as their own lords. Father, please bring them to bow the knee to Christ, to trust Christ, to come and be made right with you, O Lord. Please bless us, O Lord, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you all. Dismissed. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed and were deeply affected by this week's message titled, O Come Thou Rod of Jesse. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.